Well, this week, the NBA Finals began. For the third year in a row, it features the Cleveland Cavaliers against the Golden State Warriors. And to be honest, I really don't care. I'm just not into basketball, especially NBA. College basketball about March, you know, when March Madness starts, yeah, I'll, I'll pay attention. But the NBA, it just, I don't know, just doesn't get me. I, I'm just happy with my baseball and my football, and that's probably enough. I'd, I'd rather have hockey than NBA basketball. I, I, that's just, I, okay, this shows you how much I love the NBA. This past Thursday was game one of the finals. And I spent more time talking about my Kansas City Royals, who are in last place in the entire American League, and they weren't even playing Thursday. They had the day off, right? I just paid no attention to the NBA Finals. I did find out that Golden State won game one. ESPN wanted to make sure I knew that on my phone. Um, and that's about the totality of it. Despite my lack of love for the NBA, I did hear, though, one really amazing statistic this past week. LeBron James, the star for the Cleveland Cavaliers, is in his seventh consecutive NBA Finals. Think about that, seven. He's led Cleveland the last three, before that with the Miami Heat for four in a row. Seven in a row. Some of you have had children, and they're now in school in that amount of time. I mean, that is remarkable to realize how long he's been taking a team to the Finals. That's why some people call him the king. He's King James. Because when he steps onto the court, he seems to rule now, I realize I might be speaking to some actual NBA fans in the room, and you may begin to want to argue and say, hey, no, 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 the greatest ever was Michael Jordan. Don't you dare try and put LeBron in the same conversation. And I'm just going to say, I don't care. Right? You can go and have that debate with someone else who, who really will care about it. All, right? all I know is that's pretty impressive, to take a team seven times in a row to the NBA finals. All right? that, that's impressive. What stands out to me about that is how basketball fans want to name a king, whether it's LeBron James or Michael Jordan or someone else, they, they want to put together a, a king of, of the team. But it's not just in basketball. We have kings all over the place. In fact, I went on Facebook this week and I said, what are some cultural kings that are out there? Like Elvis. I, I, right away, I thought of Elvis. You know, he's the king of rock and roll. My Facebook feed, like my, my, all the comments, I think I, last I knew there was 60 or 70 some comments. All right, you've got Elvis, king of rock and roll, Michael Jackson, king of pop, uh, James Brown, the king of soul, Benny Goodman, the king of swing. And that's just in music, right? Some people took us to the animal kingdom. You've got lions who are the king of the jungle, the T-Rex, the king of the dinosaurs. And then I had probably about three or four people who wanted to make sure I knew about King Kong. All right, I think he's fictional. I'm pretty sure he's fictional. But anyway, they included him in that. We seem to want to be naming someone king, whether it's in basketball or music or the animal kingdom or even fast food restaurants. I can't believe how many people tried to tell me there was a Burger King. Uh, we always want to be naming a king. Ancient Israel wanted a king. We saw two weeks ago how they were longing. They were tired of having an invisible king because God was supposed to be their king. And, and so they were asking the judges. Samuel was the primary judge and the main prophet at that time. So they were asking Samuel, give us a king. We want an earthly king so we can look like all of the other nations. Why did they want to crown a king? Because we believe that kings will make us safe, that they will make us strong, that we will be victorious, and that we will be fulfilled. That's what Israel thought a king would give them. And so when you start to apply this to other areas of life, it starts to make sense. Cleveland Cavalier fans call James LeBron King James 
because when he steps onto the court, they feel safe. They feel like their safe, a win is safely in their grasp. When he leads them to yet another playoffs, they feel strong. They feel like they're one of the best teams. And last year, he finally gave the Cleveland Cavaliers their first franchise victory, their final NBA championship. And when he held it aloft, they felt victorious and they felt fulfilled. He was King James. But we do this in all of life. We find various kings, and we, in a sense, begin to become loyal to them. We, in a sense, begin to worship them because we think that they will make us safe, strong, victorious, and fulfilled. We see this in dating relationships. You find someone that you just click with, you really, really like, and when you're with them, you feel safe. When you're with them, you, you just kind of feel a little stronger emotionally, just in your character. And when they actually say yes to like hanging out with you, to dating you, to even marry you, you feel victorious. And so when you stand on a stage and you exchange vows, you feel like you are now fulfilled. And they become a king in your heart. But it doesn't just stop there. I could use your job as an example, your bank account. Maybe certain possessions. Maybe there's certain hobbies. Maybe there's certain addictions. These things that seem to promise us that if you follow them, if you bow down to them, you will be safe, strong, victorious, and fulfilled. But the problem is these kings never, ever satisfy. Out of those seven championships that LeBron has been to, well, the previous six, because this one's not over. The previous six, he only won three of them. He failed three times. Elvis, the king of rock and roll, died at age 42 of a drug-induced heart attack. Every king will fail you. Even that amazing guy or girl that you get to say yes to marriage will let you down some way, somehow, someday. But yet, this is actually a good thing. We need these kings to fail. Because I believe there's actually one king who never fails. And so we need these other kings to fail, to fall apart, to not come through. Because when they fail, it now creates in us the opportunity to return to the one true king who can make us safe and strong and victorious and fulfilled. So Jesus, I just pray that you would come through clearly in my words, that you would open up our hearts and minds right now to what you want to say to us through the scriptures, that as we open up to 2 Samuel, you would say something that we need to hear. Lord, I just trust that the people that you brought this morning are here on purpose, that they're here with a reason, that you have something for them, and you want them to hear this because you want to change them, you want to draw them to you, you want them to let go of their lesser kings and to return back to the one true king, to King Jesus. So, Father, I just pray that you would anoint my words and let it penetrate the hearts and minds of your people today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so if you've got a Bible, whether it's paper or digital, open it up to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Any week that you uh, maybe forget your Bible, totally feel free to stop by the Give and Grow table. We've got a couple of translations back there. Grab one of those. I've always got the scripture up on the screen, but I just strongly encourage you, get your own copy, whether it's paper or digital, because when you study it here with us on Sunday, what I hope is something might be sparked in you, and you may end up looking at it later on your own, whether you're doing the Bible reading plan that we're doing or you're in your growth 
growth group. So get your own Bible, bring it on Sundays, and let's dig into it. As you're turning to 2 Samuel 11, uh, just quick update. Two weeks ago, we met David. He was crowned king by Samuel. However, he was still a teenage boy. Saul was the first king of Israel, and because he did not fear and follow God, God removed the throne from him and gave it to David. However, God did not make it an instantaneous switch. He let Saul remain in the throne, remain as king, for a number of years. And so last week, we saw David, named king, but still not known to Israel, walk out onto a battlefield and defeat Goliath. So he, we saw last week one of his greatest moments ever. This week... We now see his greatest failure ever. And it's right here in 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, uh, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David, in this story, is obviously king of Israel. In fact, he's rejoined Israel and Judah back into one nation. He's the greatest king Israel had ever had. I mean, he's only their second king, and Saul really wasn't much competition. But even as you look after him, he, he was the greatest king that they had. In fact, it was through David that God promised to bring the Messiah. Je Jesus is out of the line of David. All right? Not, they didn't talk about anyone else. It was David. He was their greatest king. And yet, as great as he was, as a man after God's own heart, here he is the king, and yet he has his own king. In this story, he is allowing sex to become his king. And as we look at it, we'll also see how kind of reputation and power become these kings of his heart. But the primary one here is sex. So we're going to just have to deal with it. We're going to be talking about sex. If you haven't noticed, our culture is kind of obsessed with it. All right, just go to the movies, turn on the radio, pick up a magazine at the store. You can find the conversation all the time. We struggle as a culture with this concept of sex. And so we need to deal with it. But as much as we talk about sex today, I want you to realize that everything we talk about can be applied to these lesser kings, these various things that we give our heart and loyalty to. And so you may be going, eh, you know, sex isn't a big deal to me. It's not something I really wrestle with. But Maybe there's something else you do wrestle with. But for some of you, sex is the area of struggle. And so today might kind of hit right at where you're at. And I hope rather than closing off and saying, okay, I, I don't want to hear this. I don't want anyone intruding in this area of my life, that you'll open up. Because I don't want you to fall for this lesser king of sex. I want you to fall under the reign and rule of Jesus and begin to understand how God has designed sex to be. As much as we're going to look at sexual sin today, I do need to stop and say, sex is not bad. It's not evil. It's actually created by God, so therefore, good. It, it, it's actually a gift that God gives to a husband and a wife. It, it's not just for making babies. All right? it, it's there for pleasure, 
for joy, stress relief. It, it creates a bond between a husband and a wife. You know, it says in Genesis that God takes a, a man and a woman and the two become one flesh. And what greater way to see that than in, in two bodies being together? And so many people begin to love sex and end up being drawn into it. But what happens is because of the fall, because of sin, we take this beautiful gift that God has given us and it gets all twisted. We get it all messed up. And that's what happens to David. When he took this good thing and made it an ultimate thing, it became a bad thing. He exchanged the glory of the true king of his God and began to follow this lesser king of sex. And that's where he gets in trouble. So we're going to go through those four things that a king provides. safe, uh, Being safe, strong, uh, victorious, and fulfilled. And we're going to see how sex did not do that for David, how it was a bad king, a lesser king. The first one, uh, uh, safety. Uh, it provides a false safety. Notice in verse 1, it, it's talking about how it's the time of the year in the spring when, when kings go to battle. When Israel was clamoring for a king, we saw this two weeks ago. They, they stood before Samuel and they said, give us a king. And one of the reasons for having a king is that he would lead us into battle. Now, David's the greatest warrior they've ever seen. I mean, his legacy began when he was, what, 14, 15 years old, and he swings a stone above his head and slays the, the giant Goliath. He becomes known as the greatest warrior they'd ever seen. So when David gets named king, the people are ready to follow. I mean, they would sing songs about Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. I mean, David had this legacy. He's a warrior. But notice, he's not out at war. He stayed home. It says David remained at Jerusalem. Oftentimes, we succumb to temptation because we are in the wrong place. If we don't put ourselves in the right spot, we set ourselves up for a fall. The alcoholic cannot take the direct route home if there's constantly a bar on this side of the street and a liquor store on that side. Eventually, a bad day is going to come, and it's going to be too much. The king is going to be calling. They're going to pull over, and they're going in. So don't go the wrong place. Stay in the right spot. So even if it means you take the long route, do it. Because that's actually the safer route. And what's interesting about this is David had these mighty men. You can go into the scriptures and you can read about them. They named them and some of their feats of strength and the things they did. These mighty men were so loyal to David that they would do anything for him. There's even a story about how David made some off-the-hand comment. Boy, I really wish I could have some water from this well. Well, that well just happened to be in enemy territory. Middle of the night, some of his mighty men went in, slayed the people, stole some water, brought it back to David. Right? They would do anything for this guy. You want to talk about being safe? The safest place for David was to be with his men. Those guys had his back. He could just be himself with them. But it's interesting. You would think that by not being at war, by being back in Jerusalem, he's actually safest? Uh, he may have been safe physically. I don't think he was safe emotionally. See, I think David knew who he was as a warrior. I think David knew who he was when he was with his mighty men. But suddenly he's back home. He's just hanging out. I mean, he's kind of bored. I mean, he's, you know, getting updates and stuff from the, the battle, but he's not out there leading it, doing it, experiencing it. And I think he starts to feel unsafe. He's having a little bit of an identity crisis because he's not out there being a man. So what else is it to be a man? 
sex. I think when he sees Bathsheba bathing, that's when this desire for safety, which is a good desire, got all twisted up. And he begins to clamor and think, if I have her, I will be safe and respected and loved. Everything he should have had with his mighty men, and instead he's now transferring it into this illicit relationship with Bathsheba. So often we think the safest place isn't actually the safest place. We need something else. We need to be in a different place. Well, after David, um, well, you, you see what happens. All right, so David ends up with Bathsheba. Then it says in verse uh, 4 that, it was, that she was uh, preparing herself from her uncleanness. In the Old Testament law, a, a woman, when she had her period, would have to go through this time of purification. And what it did was as she would abstain from sex during this time of purification, it actually prepared her body to become pregnant again. Because the time she was clean again, she was actually right at the point of ovulation. So for her to be coming just off this, it would make sense why she would end up pregnant. She, finds, she realizes the next month, oh no, I've just missed. And she sends word to David, I'm pregnant. And here David wants this relationship because, man, it's going to feel great. But suddenly he gets word she's pregnant. He doesn't feel so great anymore. He doesn't feel safe. In fact, if we were to keep reading past verse 5, 6 and on, you suddenly see David scrambling. Some of you know the story, but if you don't know, what happens next is David actually calls for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come back. Uriah is one of his mighty men. Can you believe it? He stole the wife of one of his mighty men, one of the guys that had his back, and yet David had the audacity to take her. And now she's pregnant by him. And so his plan, get Uriah to come home, spend a night with his wife, they'll sleep together, and it's all covered up. Uriah will think now the child is his. But Uriah is so loyal, so heroic, so like such a man of integrity, he won't go home. He says to David, that's not right. Like the rest of our guys are out there fighting. Why should I relax here back in Jerusalem? Why should I go home and enjoy a nice meal? Why should I go and be with my wife? So he won't do it. And David's thinking, oh, this isn't working out. He's like, all right, I got to get him drunk. If he's drunk, he'll go home and sleep with his wife. It still didn't work. Finally, David realizes, man, my, one of my mighty men is actually really mighty in character. I guess I'm going to have to ax this guy off. So he writes a letter, rolls it up, seals it, and says, Uriah, take this to Joab. Uriah takes it back to the battlefield. Joab opens it up, and it says, put your eye on the front line. And when the fighting's the most intense, pull back so that Uriah is killed. And that's what happens. Just to cover it up. See, David's scrambling. He's doing anything and everything he can to hide. He thought sex is great. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be so wonderful. I, I will be safe here. And now it's got him anything but feeling safe. He's trying to cover it up. It didn't work because sex is a lesser king. It's a false king. It provided false safety. The next thing is that often we want our kings to provide us with strength. Some people, when they engage in sex, it, they, it makes them emotionally strong. Uh, some guys actually think that it, it, they, they feel somewhat physically stronger it, during those, those moments of passion. It, it, we feel like it makes us strong. And yet, you notice what happens after David. I mean, here David goes and gets this beautiful woman. And you notice that the scriptures describe her as very beautiful. Uh, years ago, there used to be these websites called Hot or Not. People could upload their own photo, and you could sit there and go, yep, she's hot, yep, she's hot, ooh, she's not. 
You know, and you can sit there and rate people, say, judge how great looking they are. So, and the really sick thing about it is people would upload their own photo to find out what people thought of them, right? The Bible typically doesn't do that, saying, oh, is she hot or not? And so for the Bible to actually take a moment and say, she was very beautiful, right? it means that if she was on this website, she'd win, right? She was gorgeous. And David thought, man, I'm a strong man if I can have a woman like that. Now, we don't know if she came willingly. We don't know if she fought him the whole way. Because she was married to such a man of integrity, I sense she was probably the same way, but we don't know. But what we do know is that David took her. Notice there in verse 4, it says, and uh, so David sent messengers and took her. Now, some translations, uh, whatever translation you're reading, they might say things like David sent messengers to get her. David sent messengers and she came to him. But the Hebrew actually says, and David sent messengers, and David took her. Even though he wasn't physically there, the messengers are doing this on behalf of David. It's like his hand is extending out through the messengers, grabbing her and taking her. This is against her will. He's taking her from Uriah. He's taking her into his bedroom. It is a sign of strength because he's the king. He thinks this makes him strong. So often we think that our kings, these lesser kings, make us strong. We, we drink certain things, we, we indulge in certain things, and in that moment we feel strong. And yet so often they end up failing us. After this story, David's kingdom begins to crumble. It absolutely crumble. It, you, you see uh, sexual sin run rampant among his family. You see a lack of trust am, among a lot of them. You even see a coup attempt. They try to overthrow him and steal the throne from David. His kingdom was no longer strong. And it all began after this moment. What he thought was a sign of strength actually led to weakness. Some people, they use sex thinking that that is what's going to make their relationship strong. I mean, think about the language we use. We, we even use it, we call it making love. But I just read an article uh, a couple months ago. Um, I tried to go and find it again, and I couldn't. But it was written by a female uh, millennial author. And she was uh, saying that she discovered that some European country, and I wish I could remember which one, has kind of changed their, their dating process. You know, most people in America would think that the dating process is guy meets girl, girl meets guy, they go out for dinner, maybe a movie, they hang out, they get to know each other, and as things really start to click, they end up in bed together. But in this European country, they've flipped it. They see someone they think's hot, they sleep together, and if it was great, then they will go out and do dinner and a movie and get to know each other. It's called, date, it's called sex before dating. Turns out that 48% of millennials have actually engaged in this at least once. 36% say that this is their preferred method for finding a partner or mate. Because the belief is, if it's strong in the bedroom, it will help set the temperature for the relationship. So if it's great here, we'll have a strong relationship over here. I could tell you, though, as a pastor, story after story after story of people who bought into the lie that sex would somehow make love, and they discovered the opposite. Sex doesn't make anything except babies. Sex is always a reflection of the relationship. The bedroom always shows you the temperature of the relationship. So if the marriage is great and strong, the bedroom's wonderful. But I'm going to tell you, if the relationship is not great, it's not going to make it all better. Sex can't fix it. It's not designed by God for that. It's designed to bring a bond, not to try and fix and repair. David had it all wrong. 
He thought that if I can get this woman, I'll be strong. Everything will be great. And instead, everything wasn't great. It all began to crumble after this moment. Sex is a lesser king. It is not designed to make you strong or your relationship strong. The next one, victorious. For some, having sex means you are victorious. I, I remember my freshman year of high school. Uh, we were on a, it was either a field trip. I think it was probably a sporting event. We're on the bus. And uh, I remember it was springtime. And one of the guys uh, came back. Uh, <clears throat> this was my freshman year. Maybe this is my senior year. All I remember is one of, it came out that one of the guys had taken the virginity of one of my classmates. And a bunch of the guys around were like, yeah! And they're high-fiving and everything. Because, like, hey, to get that, you are victorious. I, I think this is kind of why porn has become so prevalent in our culture today. Because there's this inner desire in many people to be victorious. We, we see orgasm as, like, the height. Like, I, I'm victorious. And, and so to get that, if you don't have someone readily available, well, hey, there's all these people out on the Internet or in these magazines who are ready to just give themselves to you. And so for a moment, you will feel victorious. And yet studies are showing in science that the more you indulge in pornography, the more your brain is actually getting rewired to the point that you no longer can actually enjoy the sexual act itself. You now become so reliant upon this pornography in order to achieve that victory of orgasm. Is that not the saddest thing you've ever heard? I remember reading an article, I heard this week about an article that was written in 2003, a gal by the name of Naomi Wolf. Uh, she wrote this article uh, in, um, I think it was The New Yorker. And she, as she was writing it, she said that there was this uh, very, very conservative female um, who was arguing that, that porn was ruining our culture. And what it was going to do was it was going to turn men into rapists. Because all porn was doing is turning females into sex objects and not real people. And so therefore it would create a rape culture. And Naomi Wolf said, I disagree with half of it. I actually think she's right on the first half. So here's this liberal feminist saying, I think this conservative got half of this idea right. I don't think we now have this rape culture that she feared we'd have, but I do think it has ruined our society and culture. Because Naomi Wolf, as she would go and speak at various colleges, would end up having conversations, and these young men would be talking about how they don't enjoy the sexual act anymore. How he, she, the way she put it was that real women just become bad porn. Because they no longer found it tantalizing, enjoying, that they found that they had to have these images and certain things in order to find that victory. It's not a victory. So if you are struggling with porn, I want you to know you're not alone. I mean, this is, I forget the statistics of how many people indulge and engage in porn on a weekly or monthly basis. It's very, very high. And so I realized, even as I talked to my church family, that some of you, this last week, last month, went and looked at some things because something in you wanted just that feeling. It's a little bit of your king. But it's not. Don't do it. If, if you need help, let me know. We'll find resources. We'll find ways. We'll help you get out of this. Even if you're single, even if things aren't going great in the marriage, it's not worth it. It won't give you the victory you think it will give you. It's a lesser king. It will fail you. And I want to help you find that, that joy in Christ. It didn't work for David either. He didn't find victory. 
As a result of his uh, affair with Bathsheba, it resulted in the death of Uriah. The child that was born ended up dying. And then you see just his whole entire kingdom crumble. And he has this loss of respect from his people. It didn't provide victory. So, so far we've seen that sex provides a false safety, a, a false strength, and a false victory. Now let's look at fulfillment. It brings a false sense of fulfillment. In his 2007 book, Sex God, Rob Bell makes this complicated argument. I'm not going to go into all of it. But he, he tries to make an, an argument that, that sex is a glimpse of heaven. All right? Well, for many of us, heaven would be the place of ultimate fulfillment. And so therefore, if sex is like a small glimpse of heaven, therefore there's fulfillment in it. Well, I'll say, okay, yeah, there's a sense of fulfillment, but have you ever met someone who comes back from their wedding night saying, oh my goodness, that was so wonderful, I don't need to ever have sex again. No, the more we have something that we enjoy, the more we want it. Usually the people who say, "Uh uh-uh, no, I do not want to have sex, have usually had a really, really bad experience. They're staying away out of fear. But those who've enjoyed it, they don't go, oh, that was fulfilling. Yeah, I'm, I'm good for the rest of my life. That's great. Done. No. It cannot bring a sense of fulfillment. It's not designed to do that. It's, yeah, it brings a sense of pleasure, of enjoyment, of bonding, but it's not a lasting fulfillment. It, that fulfillment will fade. It wasn't designed to do that. David, at this point in the story, has at least two wives, all right? He had one that, uh, that Saul gave him, but Saul took her away because Saul was mad at David. So why he thought he could give his daughter and then take her away, I don't know. But David ends up having two different wives that we know of at this point. So even if David was, excuse my language, but just really, really horny in this moment where he sees Bathsheba, he's got two wives that he could go and pull into the bedroom, all right? He, he had an avenue. However, He didn't. He bought the lie. He thought that if I have Bathsheba, it will be even more fulfilling. That's where the lie was. That's why you see people constantly in pornography clicking more and more and more. And and what what used to be so wonderful and tantalizing, that's no longer fulfilling. And they got to keep progressing on and on and on to more and more things. Because it's not fulfilling in the long term. It wasn't designed to do that. But this is how all false kings are. Every king that you begin to follow, any lesser king, is always going to let you down. It cannot ultimately fulfill you. So don't believe the lie that having yet another drink will do it. That if you just watch yet another movie or click on another episode, or or if you buy another possession, or, or you get more money, don't believe the lie that that king will now satisfy. It won't. It's not designed to do that. So with sex, we've seen that it provided David with a false safety, a false strength, a false victory, and now false fulfillment. But every king provides that, except one. Throughout this His Story series, we've been looking at how the entire Bible points to Jesus. Even here in the Old Testament, which comes thousands of years, David is about 14 generations before Jesus will ever walk on the earth. And yet, he is right here in the middle of the story. And I see it in two ways. The the first way is I see how this story is pointing to Jesus as the true king. And not only do I think it points to Jesus as the true king, I think it even shows us a path to make Jesus our true king. And so look at it with me. The first step is confession. Over in chapter 12, if you've got your Bible still open there, over in chapter 12, if you start skimming, you're going to notice the name Nathan. 
Nathan was a prophet that God used to go to David. And Nathan did not walk in and say, David, God has told me your sin and, and confront him. Now, David was, I mean, Nathan was a little sneakier than that, really wise. He walks in and begins to tell David a story. Starts telling David the story about this rich guy who had a huge flock of sheep, but when a guest showed up, rather than kill one of his sheep to prepare the meal, he takes a poor man's sheep from across the street and fixes that. David gets irate. He gets enraged, and he's like, who is it? Tell me. I'll, I'll arrest him and kill him. And now Nathan's got him and says, you are the man. And he begins to show him how you, David, is the king. You have your two wives. And yet you went and took one of your mighty men's wives as your own. You did the wrong thing. You committed adultery, and then you killed Uriah. Now, David's the king. In this moment, David could kick Nathan out. He could arrest him. He could even kill him. Notice, though, David's response. Chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. When his sin is finally shown him, brought to him, he realizes in that moment, I've been worshiping sex. I've been trying to cover up my sin, and it's not working. I'm worn out. And he confesses it. I have sinned against the Lord. For you to make Jesus the right king in your life, you have to start with confession. You have to confess that you made this lesser king more important than the true king. That's the first step. David was not only a great warrior, he was also a poet. He was an artist. And like most artists, he has to write a song. As God cuts him to the heart, he expresses this through poetry. And he writes a song that we know as Psalm 51. So if you know where the Psalms are, feel free to flip over to Psalm 51. Otherwise, I've got the scripture on the screen for us. But Psalm 51 is David's confession after Nathan has confronted him with his sin of, of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now you notice there in verse 3, and as you keep going on, you're starting to see his confession. I've sinned. I've done wrong. I know what I have done. It's before me. But did you notice where he started? In verse 1, he says, have mercy on me, oh God. He realizes the only true king is God. And so he starts there and appeals there, God, have mercy on me. Because I had a lesser king. Notice with me that he recognizes God as the true king. There in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Think about it. When you have sinned and you see someone absolutely forgive you for it completely, you feel incredibly safe with them. He feels safe. With God, even though he confesses in here that his sin was against God. And yet he feels safe, spiritually safe. The next one, go down to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. His sin, he felt like made him dirty. It made him weak. But as God washes him, 
he's now being made spiritually strong because God is his true king. Verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's saying, God, I was weak. I failed. Would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? And as God restores that to him, he now has a sense of spiritual victory. And he feels spiritually fulfilled. It's because God is the one true king. He will make you spiritually safe, spiritually strong, spiritually victorious, and spiritually fulfilled. No other king can do it. They can do it on a little bit, shallow, short-term, but they can't do it for an eternity like Jesus. But you've got to remember that David had had a lot of amazing moments with God. Think about it. When you're, you're like 13, 14 years old, you're out in, in the wilderness taking care of the sheep because your brothers are potentially one of them is going to be named king. And then suddenly a messenger comes and gets you and brings you in. And suddenly Samuel walks up to you, anoints you with oil, and names you the king. What a moment that would have been. To, to walk out onto that battlefield with nothing but a sling and to wave that over your head and with precision bury that rock into Goliath's forehead. And we could go on. There's many more moments where David saw God work on his behalf. He had a close relationship with God. This is why God calls David a man after his own heart. David had made God his king. But for one moment, for one time, he swapped out the true king for the lesser king of sex, and it failed him. We've seen how he's confessed to come back to the king. We see how he recognizes God as the one true king. But how do you go out protecting yourself that you don't swap out the one true king for this lesser king? I think David also shows us that. I, I apologize. I did not get this verse up on the screen, but it's, it's in verse 15 here in Psalm 51. In verse 15, David writes, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He is in awe of God. He is so in awe of God he can't help but open his mouth and praise him. In fact, he wrote an entire psalm of nothing but awe. It's Psalm 145. If you've got your Bibles open, flip there uh, really quick. Psalm 145. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. David writes, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day. When? Every day I will bless you and praise your name. When? Forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. And I could go on. The whole entire thing is nothing but awe of God. Think about it. When whatever captures your awe, that is what you worship. If you are in awe of the brand new car that your neighbor bought, and every day you keep seeing it, you begin to long for it. You begin to want it because you think if you get that, your reputation will be safe. You will appear strong. You will be victorious because you got the car. You will feel so fulfilled driving that thing. Ten years later, it's just a car. Suddenly you begin to lust after a different one. Or we could talk about our smartphones. Or we could talk about our wardrobe. Or we could talk about our houses or all sorts of things. The thing that captures your awe often becomes the thing that you worship. And those things are what we turn into our lesser kings. 
but they will all fail us. However, if you have an awe of God, and you live with that awe every day, as David says here in Psalm 145, now when you get the car, it actually leads you to worship God because it's a gift from him to you. When you see your spouse, you're not just in awe of him or her, you're now in awe of the God who gave them to you. When you hold your newborn child, you aren't just in awe of this creation, you're in awe of the one who gave you this child. When you get the new job, when you get a raise, when you get whatever, it no longer becomes the lesser king that will fail you, it now becomes something that helps you to be in awe of God. When God captures your awe, you are protected from worshiping the lesser king. So I want to help you be in awe of God. And I think what might help you a little bit today is to see Jesus in our story for the second time. Often when you go and you look at a story that involves David, it often points to Jesus because David was the prototype king that would ultimately lead to Christ, to Jesus. But not in this case because David sinned. Jesus never sinned. But there's actually another character in the story who actually points to Jesus. And it's actually in Uriah. Think about it. Uriah comes back from the field, and he's done nothing wrong. He's been loyal to the king. He's fighting hard. And when David tries to get him to go home to his wife, he won't do it because he's a man of integrity. He's selfless. And when we find out he's out on the front lines of the battle fighting, he's heroic. He's giving it his all. And yet, he ends up dying because of the sin of David. Your Jesus loved you so much. He is so loyal to you. He's dedicated you. He was so selfless. And he was heroic that he went through the cross. And like Uriah died because of David's sin, Jesus died because of our sin. And yet, Uriah took his death sentence with him unknowingly to hand to Joab. Jesus, when he came to earth, took your death sentence knowingly. And he gladly did it because he loves you. That alone should lead us to be in awe of God. Go ahead, study other religions. Show me a God that died for humans. Most of these gods demand that the humans die for the God. Not with Jesus. God has created you. He put his image upon you. And sin came in and distorted it and twisted it and tried to get you to worship these other lesser kings. And yet God, out of his grace, his abundant mercy, came and paid the price so that you could be forgiven. And that should lead us to be in awe so that we sing with a high volume, that we worship through communion, that our prayers are deep and rich. We are hungry to get into the scriptures because of what God has done for us. Because with Jesus, you are spiritually safe, you're spiritually strong, you're spiritually victorious, and you can be spiritually fulfilled. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this truth. God, I confess that so often I am like David, and I follow a lesser king. And here you are, creator of the universe who's done everything possible for me to come to you and I still will exchange it for something that's of this world and it never works out ever so God I just pray that today on this Sunday June 4th 2017 
you would just rewire our hearts, our brains, yet again to see the beauty and glory and majesty of Jesus so that we are so in awe of him that the other things just begin to fade away. They wouldn't even ultimately appeal to us. Rather, all they do is draw us more and more to you because of what you've done for us. God, I just pray for anyone here that does not have a relationship with you, that today would be the day that they bow their knee and their heart before you and they confess that they have been following a false king. And these lesser kings aren't working out. And they realize that you, the God of the universe, are the one true king. That you love them and you've opened up the gates of heaven so that they can come before your throne and bow before the one true king. So God, I pray that you'd help them right now to just express this in prayer. That they would just confess their sin, confess their lesser kings, and that they would confess you to become their one true king because they realize that, Jesus, you died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sin. And because of that, everything changes. God, I also pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, who they know who you are. They maybe even have experienced some wonderful moments, and yet they're struggling. Here's this lesser king that keeps calling, that keeps beckoning. God, if we're honest, sometimes we're more loyal to that king than we are to you. So God, I just pray that you'd hear our prayer right now. We would be like David and we would confess openly, honestly before you, confessing what we have done. But God, not only do I pray that you'd give us the guts to confess, but you would help us to have awe again. You created us to be awe-filled creatures, but so often we allow that awe to be filled by the things of this earth, when really those things should be drawing us towards you. God, help us to recapture again the awe of you. That you would be what we long for above anything else, above relationships, above money, above even sex. Because you are the greatest thing that ever was and ever will be. God, help us to stop being like little children playing in the mud, thinking that's the best thing we could ever experience. And instead, you offer us a vacation on the beach. You invite us into your presence. You say that you are our God, you are our King, and you invite us to worship you, to follow you, and with you we are spiritually safe. We are spiritually strong. We have spiritual victory over sin. And in you we can truly be spiritually satisfied and fulfilled. So God, I just pray right now for this holy moment. You'd be speaking to the hearts and minds of your people, calling people to repentance, calling them to confess, helping them to realize that through the Jesus, their sins have been washed in white as snow. They have been purged with hyssop. They are made clean, and you have restored their salvation to them. And so help us, Father, to walk out of here today with that joy, a joy that's found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray together.